Welcome to Lingthusiasm, a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics. I'm Gretchen McCulloch. I'm here with Wunfei Ting, who's a research associate and the lab manager at the Brain, Language, and Intersensory Perception Lab at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. And today, we're getting enthusiastic about kids in multilingual environments. We'd like to extend a huge thanks to Dr. Susie Stiles, who heads the Blip Lab at NTU, for hosting me in Singapore. Check out our interview with Susie about which words sound spiky across languages. See the link in the show notes. But first, some announcements. We're doing another Lingthusiasm live show just a few days after this episode goes up. The live show is online at 4pm on February the 18th for me in Montreal, or 8am on the 19th for Lauren in Melbourne, 2023. Follow the link in the show notes for more time zones. This live show is a Q&A about language and gender with returning special guest Dr. Kirby Conrad. You may remember Kirby from their very popular episode about the grammar of singular they, so we're bringing them back for a more informal discussion which you can participate in. You can ask your language and gender questions or share your examples and stories in the comments on Patreon or in the AMA questions channel on Discord in advance, or bring them along to the live show. You can join the Lingthusiasm live show by becoming a patron at the Lingthusiast tier or higher. This is also the tier that has access to our monthly bonus episodes, most recently a chat between me and Lauren But what's coming up in the year ahead, including our plans to keep giving you regular episodes while Lauren's on parental leave. Go to patreon.com slash Lingthusiasm to get access to the live show, monthly bonus episodes, and more. Hello, Fei Ching. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. This is the first time I'm doing any kind of interview and the first time being on a podcast. So, Amazing. We're yeah. excited to, to be your very first time. Can we start with the question that we ask all of our guests? How did you get into linguistics? So my younger sibling was diagnosed with dyslexia when she was maybe around the age of nine or 10. Mm-hmm. And then she started going for English language classes to help her spell. Oh. And that was when my old sibling and I started realizing that we display a lot of the same quote-unquote symptoms or we have the same struggles. And then I started doing a little bit of reading and got really interested in this idea of, oh, maybe we're all dyslexic. But then she got a diagnosis because it was a lot more like prominent or, or it came out a lot more in, in her day-to-day schooling. And then later on in high school, my high school is right next to a school for children with cerebral palsy. Okay. And then I would go over once a week to sort of be a teaching assistant to help out if the teachers need any help. And one of the things that we did was to bring the children to their speech therapy sessions. The speech therapist there at that time was a very nice lady. She was from India. And she was teaching some of these children how to pronounce like particular consonants or vowel sounds as best as they could. And she spoke with a really heavy accent. And I thought to myself, well, these children are Singaporean children. Mm. Um, and then they are receiving speech therapy in an accent that is unfamiliar to them. And yeah, is this going to be any use for them? Yeah, and they are. Well, a lot of them have a lot of, as you can imagine, like modal difficulties. Mm-hmm. And some of them with language development difficulties. And, and so when they mimic, they also mimic the accent as well. Right. So they're going to be mimicking her accent, which is a perfectly fine accent to have, but yeah. not what the rest of their family and community have. Yeah. Yeah. And so at that time, I was just thinking about, okay, 
this is a cool job. I had never come across speech therapy before in my right, life. Right, right. I didn't even know what it was. So when I first learned about it, I thought, wow, that's really cool. But at the same time, I also thought, oh, maybe this is what I want to do in the yeah. future. And so I set out looking at like which universities to go to, what do I have to do to become a speech therapist. So it kind of led me on to this path of like going to university for linguistics. And then I taught for a little bit. So I taught for about four years. You're teaching what? Teaching English. Ah, uh-huh, okay. Yeah, after graduation. And then in between, I did some volunteering work and I looked at the overall sort of job market for speech therapy in Singapore. The thing about it in Singapore is a lot of our speech therapists don't really get to do a lot of speech therapy per se. Oh, that yeah. seems like it's not the thing you came into the job for. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them end up doing like elderly care, oh, uh, okay. swallowing therapy with patients that you know might have suffered from a stroke. But you were excited about working with kids. Yeah, yeah. And then I was told by almost every speech therapist that there isn't that much focus on research right now because they are hoping that a lot of people just graduate with a master's speech therapy and then go work in a hospital. And then you will likely not, you know, be working with children. Right. And I guess there's sort of the question of like, what are Singaporean children, quote unquote, expected to be able to do at a certain age? Mm-hmm. Or like, is there even research on what their typically developing peers would be able to do in this context that would help you devise therapy programs for kids? Yeah. So at that point, no, I think right now as well, this is this is the current work that we're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Looking at children growing up in Singapore, which is a really multilingual environment. So the documentation of regular kids, we don't have good documentation of that yet. And, you know, therefore you can think about how for children that have some sort of language delay or developmental disorders, we don't have therapy that might be tailored to our variety of English and the other languages that we speak here. I feel like something that I've heard from people in more sort of monolingual or monolingual-ish language environments in Canada, the US, is, oh, well, you know, my sibling got diagnosed with dyslexia or something. And so my parents stopped speaking our heritage language to the kid because they thought it would confuse them and they did only English. But like, we know that lots of people are multilingual and this is fine. Yeah. But there isn't a good amount of knowledge about like what does it look like to develop in a multilingual environment where this is, mm-hmm. you know, normal and expected, and and everyone is doing this, and it would cause like difficulties to not be able to function in that multilingual yeah. space because you can't talk to your grandparents or you can't talk to you know people in some stores that you go into. Like that's mm-hmm. that's also part of what you need for functioning in a language is having access to sort of multiple language spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Like in Singapore. Well, I think this is unfortunate. Some of the children who are diagnosed with dyslexia earlier on, they will be given recommendations to not do the, well, we call it here the mother tongue languages, which in schools are taught as Mandarin, Chinese, Malay, or Tamil. Mm -hmm. And the recommendation is, well, don't do your mother tongue language as a subject. Only do English. Only do English. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, as you mentioned, it, it then becomes difficult for the child to converse with you know, people around them or their family members who might not be using English. Right. Yeah. Like because the norm of the research that's been happening on kids with various developmental disabilities Mm. has been doing it on monolingual populations, which then makes it seem like you need to be monolingual in order to benefit from Mm -hmm. 
the various kinds of therapies that people do. Mm -hmm. The common misconception is if you're already struggling in one and that one language is usually English, Mm -hmm. then let's not burden your brain Mm. with a second one. You know, but languages are so different. Like Mandarin Chinese is radically different compared to English, both mm-hmm. in the way it looks as well as the structure. And so processing of Mandarin Chinese is also different. So there isn't enough research right now to support saying that a child who is English Mandarin bilingual will benefit from not having to do Mandarin as a subject in school. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, the brain is very flexible, and yeah. very plastic. Yeah. And so the things you make the brain do, it almost makes you wonder if like being exposed to more languages would kind of help because yeah. you're giving the brain more practice in doing language stuff. But yeah. maybe I don't know if there's data on this. Yeah. <laughs> well, we don't know enough. Yeah, we don't know enough. But you're not currently a speech therapist. No, no, I'm <laughs> uh, not. You, you work in a, in a language lab. Yep. How did that happen? And what are you working on now? Yeah, so I did my undergraduate degree in linguistics, which I love. It was fantastic. It, I think for the first time when our professors were like, let's do research on the languages that you speak. And it was the first time that I thought, oh, you mean I can study Singapore English, like Singlish in an academic setting? You mean it's, it's worthy of being studied? I think that was the first thing. And then later on after graduation, because I had looked at what speech therapy is and isn't in Singapore currently, I thought, well, maybe I should go and do some work. Mm-hmm. earn some money and then <laughs> think o- and then think about whether or not I want to you know do grad school mm-hmm. and then I think eventually settled on just my love for research more than being a therapist or going out and practicing you know in the clinical setting so mm-hmm. I decided to pursue my master's and then after that I've just stayed in with the same lab yeah <laughs> stayed, stayed in the lab and as a day-to-day level as a lab manager you're sort of working with and supervising the various studies that are being run by the professors and students mm-hmm. and people in the lab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what do you do as a lab manager? Yeah, so the number one thing is is coordinating the different studies that go on. So we have studies that are carried out independently by our PhD students. Then mm-hmm. we also have studies that we run as a group amongst all of our research assistants and our, our student assistants. And then just making sure that everything is running on schedule. I also do a lot of prep before any studies being conducted. So we write all of our surveys, we make sure that all the equipment's well set up. And then there's also the administrative side of things, which is the boring and less glamorous part of research. So this is like, you know, working on writing grants or, you know, filling out paperwork to get Mm -hmm. permission to work with, you know, children. Mm -hmm. You have to go through the ethics board and tell them like, no, we're not going to harm the children. It's going to be fine. They're just going to look at some pictures and hear some sounds or something. Yeah. You know, sort of, if you've got equipment like uh, you've got an EEG machine, which is like the electrode cap that, you know, you put on your head and you can see the see the brainwaves going. Yeah. I guess that probably needs to be maintained. Yeah. Yeah. We need to wash that very thoroughly. We need to train our students when they come into the lab on how to use it. We have interns come in every summer and they do good work with us. So I also manage all of our interns. And then I think help our students or our, our undergrads see What's the reality behind doing research? I think mm-hmm. very often they might think about grad school or they might think about moving into the field of academia after graduation, just seeing the sort of glam mm. side of things, right? Like all looking at papers that are being published or books that are being written. And papers but, look very polished, yeah, right? Like, yeah. oh, we did this thing. We had 32 infants. Yeah. They came in and did this. It doesn't tell you like this infant started crying and so yeah. we had to exclude them. Exactly. Or like, you know, these infants, like we tried to call their parents and they wouldn't reply to our messages mm-hmm. and so they wouldn't come in. And so we, we actually tried to get 52, but only 32 came. Yes. 
Yes. Like the day-to-day of it is very mundane. A lot of the work that we are focusing now on is understanding the linguistic landscape for children growing up in Singapore. So we want to find out what's going on at home, right? Who are talking to them and in what languages and Mm -hmm. in what proportion. So the best way to do that right now is to send them home with a little recorder. So I've seen this recorder. It's sort of like the size of like a credit card, but thicker. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you put it in like a shirt that the, the child wears and has a little Velcro pocket so yep. it doesn't fall out. Yep. And then it runs and the kid can run around and you're not trying to keep like them in front of a mic yep. where they have to stay still, which because they're toddlers, they're not going to do that. Yep. And you can hear anything that the infant says and also anything that someone says, like an adult or an older child says around them. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and that recorder goes on for about 10 to 16 hours on its mm-hmm. own. And when we get that recording back, the humans have to go listen to these <laughs> recordings and we do a lot of transcription work. And that is one of the day-to-day mundane things. It's not exciting. You sit in front of a computer and you open up a file and you're listening, you know, maybe for an hour before you have to stop because it's just too much. Yeah. And you are transcribing. Well, we do a lot of fine grain transcription. So we're not only noting down like the words that are being said, we are also looking at who's saying it we're also we're counting the number of turns we are marking it for the different languages so right now i'm speaking english but the day-to-day conversation for a singaporean household might be english plus a lot of other things that are going on and it's maybe it's different from what we conventionally understand as code switching Mm -hmm. or the way that code switching is being described in textbooks um, is that you switch very elegantly Uh from one language to the other in a nice wrapped up sentence. Right. So it's saying like, okay, I'm going to say this bit in, you know, for me, English and then for French or something. And I'm going back and forth. And this sort of implies that these two languages are distinct entities that I'm switching back and forth between them. Mm -hmm. But if you've grown up in a multilingual household your whole life and your parents are also grown up in a multilingual household, what you're also doing is producing the whole spectrum. Yeah in a way that's like how people have produced it around you, but also maybe a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not clean, like code switching. And it happens within an utterance, right? People mm-hmm. swap out words and sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's unconscious, sometimes it's deliberate to make a point. And the, the way that we describe it, or I like to think about it is like if you have a salad bowl mm-hmm. of different components, you know, you have your tomatoes, you have your cucumber and onions, right? And as I'm speaking to a different person, I can decide which part of the salad I want to pick, right? right? Which ingredient I want to pick. And it's not like a clean switch, right? For, for me, it will be like English and Mandarin. It's not a clean switch between the two. And then, of course, there's this very exciting thing called Singlish. Right. So this is stuff that's sort of unique to Singapore. Mm-hmm. And Singlish seems to imply that it's Englishy. Mm-hmm. But there's stuff from lots of languages involved. Yeah. yeah. So when I was in university, I mean, when we first looked at it from like a very academic setting, it's often described as like a creoloid, right? So it's a okay. little bit like a creole, but maybe not. So then people have explained it to say that, oh, you know, the backbone of Singlish is English. And mm-hmm. then it's added with all these vocabulary from non-English languages. So this is going to be like Chinese, but less Mandarin, right? Mm-hmm. Less Mandarin for sure. More Hokkien. Mm-hmm. Or in some other parts of the world, Hokkien is also referred to as Minnan. Okay. Yeah. And then some Cantonese, some Teochew, Hakka, and then some Malay and some Tamil. 
So Hokkien, Cantonese, Chuchu, and Hokka are all kind of Chinese varieties mm -hmm. within that. And then Malay and Tamil are separate from other regions of the world. Yeah. And these are all groups that have been part of Singapore. Yes. Yes. So we were colonized by the British for a long time. And before that time, we didn't really have people living on the island that there, there mm. were there were some well historically if you look at it there were fishermen or fishing villages mm -hmm. but largely this island is uninhabited oh, okay and then when the british came and they decided to develop this place or this island as a port obviously lots of people came for work opportunities right and so we saw a lot of migration from modern day south part of china Okay, right, so yeah. the Guangzhou, Guangdong region, we also saw some migration from modern-day Malaysia and Indonesia, mm -hmm. and then from the southern part of India. And that's why the Indian language that's spoken here predominantly by people at that time was Tamil instead of, of Hindi, for example. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so these are sort of the big ethnic groups in Singapore's history. Yeah. And then when people are coming into contact with them, they get you know, mixed together people using words from all sorts of sources. Yeah. And this is what kids are exposed to in the home yeah. is not just, oh, here's Chinese, here's Mandarin, which is sort of the most famous version of Chinese, yeah. but also here are words from Hokkien mm -hmm. or Teochew or these mm -hmm. other mm -hmm. varieties. And also, I guess, probably depending on the kid's heritage, yeah. whether they're going to have more Malay words or more Tamil words or more Chinese words. Yeah, that's right. So what does this look like when you're trying to say, here are the results that we have? This is what kids are getting exposed to. Yeah, I think the thing that we didn't expect was to do so much language documentation as part of this mm. project, right? Because what we want to do is find out, you know, what are kids growing up hearing. But then along the way, because we're collecting all of this data, we are also documenting what is the current state of things, right? For, right. for what Singlish sounds like, right? Or what we can say what Singlish is in, in a household right now. So if we look at the Singapore census, the last one was taken in 2020, a huge number of younger population now say that English is the predominant home language. It has crossed the 50% threshold for the younger age groups. And that's a first in our country's history. So you can also imagine that the English here or the Singlish here is, is changing rapidly, mm -hmm. right? Compared to, you know, my parents or my grandparents' era. Like what people are doing is changing. But if you say English is sort of a dominant home language, that's picking one yeah. out of probably there are still several languages yeah. being spoken in this mixed way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then understanding what Singlish is is one thing. And then when we are writing it in our paper, how do we make ourselves well understood for an audience that is unfamiliar with research in a non-standard variety? Mm. So one of the things that we tried explaining is this term that we use called red dot. Right. And we have a current study going on called Red Dot Baby Talk, okay. where we have a list of words that we've come up with based on what we know Singaporean parents use with their children. And we're asking Singaporeans, at what age do you think a child would know this word? And would you use this word with a child? So just to back up for yeah. a second. So Red Dot is a term for Singapore. Uh, uh, Right, because it's sort of if you look at a big map of the world, yeah. it's a city state effectively. So it's it's about the size of a red dot on yes. a map. Yes, yes. So this is sort of an affectionate way of referring to Singapore specific words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the words would be bom 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 bom, and I might say it to a child, you know, after they've had a long day and they're sweaty, and I say, okay, now it's time to bom bom. 
So is this like have a bath or a shower yeah, or something? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's right. And we don't know, or at least I have no idea where that word like came from. My guess is it's from one of these Chinese varieties that we talked about just now, but I'm not 100% certain. Right, because it doesn't have a clear etymology linked yeah. to any particular language. It's just this is a word people use in Singapore mm-hmm. with kids. Mm-hmm. Right, and then we have just the thing that you give to a crying child. Oh, like a like a candy or something or a toy? Like a pacifier. Ah, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pacifier, yeah. Uh, binky, dummy. I've yeah. heard a lot of words for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Soother, yeah. Yeah, and then we also have the word sayang. Sayang? Yeah, and sayang is, well, originated from Malay, mm-hmm. right? Um, but the use of it in Malay is very different from the use of it in Singlish. Okay. So in Malay, it can be used as a verb to mean like love. Ah, okay. Right. It can also be used as a term of affection, right? So you can call someone your sayang, like okay. your, your darling. But in Singlish, it's this action of stroking very oh, gently. Okay. So if you see a little cat, right, yeah. you might tell your child to sayang the cat. Yeah. Make sure you do it gently and yeah. don't pull the cat's fur and yeah. their tail and make them scratch you. Yeah. Right. So if someone in, in that context is using the word sayang, I wouldn't necessarily say that that person is code switching into Malay. Right, because it has a different meaning in Malay. Yeah. And they're not using it with that meaning. Yeah. And like, I'm not a Malay speaker. So Mm -hmm. when I use the word sayang, I can't say that I'm code switching into Malay. I've just chosen a token in Singlish. Right, right. And so these are very like child, I can see how they're used in a child specific context. Mm. But there are other parts of Singlish that are just part of the everyday vocabulary for adults and stuff as well. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. So you've been here a few days now uh-huh. um, and and food is a big thing in Singapore. And when food is good or when things are going well, in a good scenario, we can say shiok. Shiok. Yeah, I've seen this on some signs. Yeah. Uh, like it seems to be, I was walking in one of the streets and they're saying shiok because they're trying to say like the food is good yeah. and, and it's good in a Singaporean sort of way. Mm-hmm. I think the sign said shiok la, yeah. which was maybe a little bit trying to be really heavy on the Singapore, Singlish yeah. thing, because la is this sort of famous word in Singlish that is used as a particle at the end of sentences mm-hmm. for a lot of different purposes. Yeah, yeah, for a lot of different purposes. And yeah, so we have a lot of these like sentence final, utterance final particles. Origin of it is from Chinese varieties, mm-hmm. right? So we have la, le, me, ho, liao, yeah. And maybe lots of other ones that I'm missing right now. Uh, yeah, there's probably a whole list. I mean, we can link to some things about Singlish if people want to get a larger picture of what's going on. This is not the, you know, teach yourself Singlish in half an hour episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so the one that I've heard people say a, a fair bit is la, because it seems to be pretty common. And it's sort of a like a confirmation or mm-hmm. like a question. Yeah, confirmation. It's also sometimes used as to make something sound final and definitive. Mm-hmm. Like if you ask me if I could do something and I say, Kenla. Kenla. So this gets us to another one that I've also heard people use, which is can by itself as sort of a response to questions or whether something can happen. I was in a cab and the, the cab driver said, can, you know, like as in, can you get out okay? Or yeah. are you are you doing this? And I guess I probably should have responded can, but I don't have this naturally yeah. yet. Maybe if I'm here a little bit longer. Yeah. <laughs> you can say can or Ken Ken. Ken Ken. Yeah, like Ken Ken is to confirm that you mm-hmm. can actually do something or, or it can happen. I think the closest thing that I have to that in my English is can do, which still drops the subject or doesn't have the subject there. But for some reason, I want the, the do, do to be there. Can yeah. do. 
or like I can, I think I can mm-hmm. compared to I heard someone say think can yeah. where I would say I think I can. Yeah, over here, like think can or I think can is very well formed. I think I can is is almost too much. Yeah, almost too much. Or you're being very emphatic about that it's I think yeah. I can, maybe you don't. Yeah. And this is probably Chinese influence, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we think about Chinese as a language that determines the topic of the sentence first, and then you add comments to that topic, that's why we can go about dropping like the subject or dropping a lot of these like modal verbs. Yeah. So one of the studies that we did previously was, well, one of our undergrads started this project and we asked people to look at different menus and order the same dish. Okay. Yeah. But to imagine themselves in three different settings, right? So the first setting is the menu is printed on like really nice fancy paper and fancy Mm -hmm. font, and it's supposed to mimic like a fancy restaurant. Okay. And then the second menu is like it's in casual font and the setting is like a hip cafe. Okay. And then the last one, we didn't have a menu, but it was just a picture of a hawker center stall front. Uh, yeah, so the hawker centers are like, they have a whole bunch of little kind of marketplaces, but indoors. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have all these food stalls yeah. and you, you sort of go around from each one and you sit. I think of them as kind of like cafeteria tables. Yeah. So you sort of sit out at them and you have a tray and you you get you know, foods and drinks and desserts and stuff from different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is very informal. Yeah, yeah, very, very informal. So we had undergrads come in and order the same dish, which is the dish of laksa. Which I've now had. It was very good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of a spicy soup. Yeah. And then the instructions was that when they ordered it, they have to ask for more chili. Okay. And they should ask to take it away. Okay. Just to give them more things to say. Yeah. 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 So when people are imagining themselves in a very fancy restaurant, they might say, uh, can I please have right a bowl of laksa? Can you add more chili? And I would like to have it taken away. Right. Okay, so, so these very full sentences, yeah. kind of, and very trying to be polite and add this extra ornamentation around mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And then when you do a syntax analysis on it, and when we draw grammar trees, you end up with a very complex grammar tree or mm-hmm. quite a number of grammar trees just to explain this one scenario, mm-hmm. right? But when they're given a picture of a hawker stall and and they're supposed to imagine like a very informal setting, they can say something like, "Auntie, one laksa, more chili." Stay away. Auntie, one laksa, more chili, take away. Like just saying each of the bits of information without, oh, please, if you don't mind, yeah. can I have? Yeah. And then you don't you don't need the can I have? You don't need the extra verbs or, mm-hmm. or the extra sentence structure, right? It's just the, the topic, one laksa, and then more chili, right? Mm-hmm. And then take away. And this is, it's not rude. Like this is yeah. polite. This yeah. is a normal thing you say. And you've said auntie because you're addressing the stall owner as auntie or uncle yeah. based on who they are, which is polite. Yeah. So that's also another thing about, um, I think you hear it here in Singapore. You also would hear it in Malaysia, uh, this calling everyone auntie and uncle, mm-hmm. even though they're not related to you. If they are somewhat like the age where your parents might be. Yeah. <laughs> and then you just, you know, auntie, uncle, every everyone is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have other words for people who are closer in age to you or younger? Uh, not quite. Like, okay, it's so. More about elders? Yeah, yeah. It is more for elders. And if I approach, like, like, oh, if I'm in, in a cab, the taxi uncle mm-hmm. might address me as Xiao Mei, like little girl or young girl. Or if I'm ordering something and they want to be nice and polite, they might say Mei which is like pretty girl. Ah, okay. Yeah, like, you know, 
even though they, they, it's just <laughs> they're not hitting on you. This no, is just no. like a polite thing to say. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. But usually he will hear then say xiao mei, which is like little girl to a female, and then xiao di to a guy ordering something. Ah, uh, because you have that sort yeah. of age thing. Yeah, in in French, I'm I'm used to people addressing me as Madame or mm-hmm. Mademoiselle, mm-hmm. and I could like there was a period when I was getting like fifty fifty, and now it's mostly Madame. So clearly, people think I've like gotten older. Okay, <laughs> but there was a period when it sort of depended on what I wore mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. for which mm-hmm. one I would get, and you know how strangers address you in public is. Mm-hmm. This... Yeah, so if my mom was to go to like the market, for example, she might address. Someone working there as auntie, and then they will also address her as auntie. Okay, like we're both aunties. Auntie. We're both of the right age, or we could have yeah. nieces and nephews, so we're yeah. both aunties now. Yeah, and that's perfectly fine. You've also been doing some interesting things with research methodology and how to get this audio data apart from bringing parents into the lab and having them talk to kids. Yeah. So, well, with COVID, everything was interrupted. Right. Right. And I think you know people who are doing research. Everyone would commiserate over our lack of ability to reach out to to parents with little kids. So we did a years long study on Zoom. Okay. Yeah. Where- so you get parents talking to their kids on Zoom. Kids aren't always very good at interacting mm-hmm. with a computer with a technology thing. Yeah. Yeah. So we had eight to thirty six month olds, and the task was for their parents to describe to them a wordless picture book on Zoom and. Sometimes, like you said, some kids are clearly not interested. <laughs> But right. at least having a picture book to look at mm-hmm. gives them something to sort of do on camera, not just like come on, talk, yeah, talk to the nice research on yeah. auntie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and then because the picture book is wordless, it's up to them in what language they would mm-hmm. like to do the task in. Some parents get. You know, very excited about describing every single thing on the screen instead of just following along like the main storyline.、Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they will break off to, oh, oh, you remember we saw an elephant? Because、uh, in the book there is an elephant, right, right. And then they might the other day or the other time we went to the zoo, we saw an elephant. You remember? And then they might go on talking about other things, which is a nice thing about wordless picture books. Actually, it just sort of gives them like some some stimulus to talk about rather than just being like, okay, you know, here we are in front of a computer.、I'll All we can talk about is the computer. Now you've got the elephant as a topic of conversation.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't know about like kids growing up in this COVID period, or maybe they've gotten used to seeing another human on on screen. Yeah. Um. So we didn't have kids who are like, oh, I'm so this is so weird. I don't want to do this anymore because they're already talking to probably other friends and family members and things using Zoom because they're pandemic babies. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We have some funny things that happen. Right, so again, this brings back to like just the reality of doing research, right?、Mm-hmm. So sometimes I would have parents like carry the laptop they w- they were talking to me on on、oh. Zoom and chasing after their kid, <laughs>、oh, no. or like ah,、oh, just come back here. This nice lady is waiting for us to finish <laughs> the story, and yeah, things like that happen. Or like because we're recording them when they're home,、yeah. right? Sometimes you know someone walks into the room that they're in, or、mm-hmm. right. So these, these sort of like unexpected scenarios do crop up from time to time. But we're really happy with the data that we managed to collect. So it's. Do you have results for that yet? We have a methods paper out. Okay.、Um, because as part of the study, we ran it as a micro longitudinal intervention study. Okay. Um. So what does that mean? 
Ah, so the intervention that we ran was for the parents, right? We wanted to see if giving parents tips, right, concrete tips on what they can do with their child to improve or to add on to the kind of talk that they can have with their child, whether or not that would influence or change the way that they would communicate with their kids. So the baseline was describing the wordless picture book the first time and then they would go through an intervention for so they would get like text messages every day for 28 days Mm -hmm, for 28 days that would say things like have you considered you know singing songs with your kid or have you considered like when you see pictures like talking about what's in the pictures or Mm -hmm. something like that Mm -hmm. so every day we gave them like a tip the tips start out really easy like doing some counting and then at the last week we talk to parents or we tell parents about concepts that might be a bit more advanced like things like mental state verbs right so verbs like i think or i wonder there is literature to show that when you use mental state verbs with your child right one you're helping them imagine scenarios that they are not in right think about it from someone else's perspective right so this ties in with this thing called the theory of mind and then when you use these words especially in english your sentences get a bit more complex Right, because if you're saying, I think this, and then you have to have another another sentence in yeah. there, which is maybe yeah, not quite the same thing if you're doing like think can. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So after 28 days, we see them again on Zoom for the same video call picture book description. And then we ran it as a RCT, randomized control trial. So they're sort of randomly in one group that, you know, has these 28 tips in between, and then another group that has something yeah. Less. Yeah. So the other group, we only gave them one email a week and it's there are no concrete tips. It's just emphasizing on how important it is to talk to their child. But because the way we advertise it, we said, you know, if you sign up, we'll give you some tips. Uh, so this is important to make parents want to participate in the study because yeah. they think they're doing something good for their child mm-hmm. by by getting some tips there. Mm hmm. Because there's lots of reasons people want to participate in studies. You know, yeah. Sometimes you pay them, sometimes yeah. the kid gets a toy or something. Mm-hmm. But also in this case, they wanted to feel like they were getting some help with yeah. raising a kid. Yeah. So after the first 28 days and then after we saw them for a second time point, we swapped both oh, groups okay. of parents around. Right. So if you had the intervention, now you were in the non-intervention group and you only got one email per week. And then the parents who didn't get the tips previously, they now got, you know, a message every, every day. Every day. Um, yeah. So So are you sitting there like texting all the parents individually? You have like an automatic system? No, we don't. So um, our research assistant, Shaza, she was doing all the texting. Okay. Um, and because it was like a rolling sort of sign up program. So you have some people who are on like day two and some people who are on like day 20 and they yeah. each need to get a different message. So it's almost complicated to program. Yeah, it's difficult. And and she would text them at 10 in the morning and say, no, today's tip is this. And then with each tip, we would also give a link to mm-hmm. our, our website where they can read more if they wanted to. And then in the evening around 4 to 5 p.m., she would text them again and say, hi, parent, did you try our tip today? How do you find it? And that's the other unique part of our intervention because a lot of times when people are in an intervention, they're sort of left alone for mm. the entirety. And then at the end, they might be given like a feedback survey. So it's almost just as much about having the support for talking about what parenting was like Mm -hmm. and, you know, reflecting on using language with their child that they feel like they got some sort of emotional support out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or any kind of like interaction, because at that time, well, we started collecting data June of 2020. And um, so this is sort of lockdown. Yeah, lockdown, right? A lot of parents were working from home. People couldn't see their family members. And so having a researcher to talk to might be nice. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of nice. Yeah, yeah. Or a lot of children, if they were going to like infant care or daycare, all of that had stopped. Right, of course. Yeah. 
So I guess for a lot of parents, it was like, oh, I'm given some some kind of support. Some, some kind, kind of, of support. It'd be interesting, I guess, to try to figure out how much of that was sort of pandemic or lockdown specific. And especially if the parent is becoming the child's only or primary source mm-hmm. of language input mm-hmm. in a way that if they're going to childcare or preschool or seeing their relatives and stuff like that, they wouldn't be as much dependent on like one or two people yeah. for talking with the child all the time as language input. They would have a broader community access. Yeah. That's right. And I, I think that was one of the things that parents have told us, like, oh, yeah, language input has changed. It's, it's not something that they actively thought about. Mm-hmm. But then you're like, oh, yeah, my kid's not getting that much Malay because, well, my mom speaks to them in Malay. But, you know, now we can't visit right. we can't gra- see her. grandma anymore. Right. right. So this changes the way that the, the language input goes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, we have a methods paper out. We are still transcribing transcribing takes so long <laughs> yeah it, it does it i think does. the estimate that i learned in grad school was like for every one minute of audio it takes like an hour to transcribe yeah yeah, yeah. that's the pace that we are going at we we've, we've been very blessed with lots of great transcribers and student assistants who've come in and helped us so we are almost there we're very happy that we have 842 parents and wow. families that stay with us through all three time points i think it's a little rare to see that for like a longitudinal study involving children. Mm-hmm. But they had nothing else to do in lockdown, so they yeah. stayed in your study. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like to think that, and I also like to think that, you know, we were nice. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, they, found, they found it useful. To have the supportive text messages every day. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we're going into the next stage where we will be doing some analysis. Right, so we're counting like number of turns taken, we're counting um, number of words and the diversity of, of words uh, being used and whether or not, you know, people sort of swapped or changed or code switched in any mm-hmm. in any way. Yeah. And then you end up with also sort of this linguistic landscape of like how people are talking in their homes, at mm-hmm. least when they have a kid around and you can see which, which bits there. So when you're talking about code switching, you can say, okay, you know, these words are in English. These mm-hmm. words are in specifically in Hokkien or, mm-hmm. or Mandarin or something. These words are in Tamil or Malay. But you also have the, you know, Singlish-specific words, yeah. the red dot words yeah. that are hard to pin down for one particular language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we've essentially written our own little dictionary, actually. Oh, that's yeah, great. Yeah, because along the way, we're like, oh, there's this word that's come up. But because a lot of Singlish hasn't been codified or documented, mm-hmm. there is no one way to spell it. Right, of course, because it's mostly spoken. Yeah, yeah. And then, so if we've decided to spell it one way, like we always have to check with other English speakers around us. And then, you know, we we don't want to say, oh, we're spelling it this way and this way must be right. Right, right. We're, We're saying... We have to come up with something. You have to pick one because if you want to say, okay, for every hundred words that this parent says, you know, 30 of them are in Malay, you know, 50 of them are in English, 23 of them are in Singlish, red dot words. Like it's hard to pin down exactly which, which of them are from where. But you need to be able to look through and say, you know, this one word, shiok, is yeah. being used this many times in the whole corpus, yeah. not we spelled it 14 different ways, yes. so we have no idea how many times it's being used just for your own internal purposes, yes. which yes. isn't to say that someone else is wrong for using a different spelling. Yes, that's right. That's right. And then we want to be very open about it. So we have uh, we have a wiki page that's open for anyone who wants to come and take a look at our transcription conventions. Our dictionary is also open, open access, so people can come in and take a look at that, at how we've decided to codify certain things just because we we need it for our own, like you mentioned, like counts and things like that. 
yeah, the other part of our project is working with speech engineers. So, um, oh, okay. yeah, so I'm sure you're familiar with like Siri and Google, right? Um, so I, I talk into them, they transcribe me, they understand me. But like, I notice even when I'm speaking French to them, which I don't have a native French accent, they're not very good at transcribing what I'm saying in a language that isn't like the very, you know, Paris French that they're trained on. Yeah. So I bet this happens with Singlish. Yeah. So it's a challenge, right? It's difficult in Singlish. It's difficult when people switch between or among the languages so rapidly. So we had a PhD student from the engineering department that was on this project, and he was looking at how do you do automatic language identification on the recordings that we've collected? Because this could save you a lot of time if it works. Yeah, if it works. But <laughs> it's also a really challenging problem. One, it's that you know it's not the standard variety, and then the other thing, it's it's child directed. Right. Yeah, like they don't have good solutions for child directed speech. Yes. Because people talk differently to children, mm-hmm. they maybe use, depending on the language, sort of a, like a broader range of pitches mm-hmm. or higher pitches. Mm-hmm. Maybe they talk a bit slower. They have child-specific vocabulary mm-hmm. that, you know, like this word for, for pacifier, which has a lot of child-specific words in different languages yeah. or different varieties. You know, this is not the kind of thing that language models are trained on. Yes. They're trained on like journalists talking on the news yes. in this very formal context. Yes, that's right. And so, yeah, our PhD students has done really great work. We also work with our speech engineers at John Hopkins University. And whenever we have meetings with them, I tell them, oh, I'm so sorry, but our, our data set's really problematic. <laughs> I, I know that. I understand that. Um, but they see it as a great challenge. Right. right. And and if, you know, if all you're doing is, is news stuff, it's less interesting or mm-hmm. relevant. Like it's maybe it's a problem, but maybe like the algorithms that we're not accounting for it are the problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and our language models are only as good as, as the data that we train them on. Right. They, they all come with a certain set of biases. Right, right? absolutely. And, and right now the bias is non-child directed language. Yeah, right. and non-Singaporean language. Yeah, non-Singaporean language. So yeah, it's it's been interesting just looking at our data from their point of view as well. There's going to be more and more reliance on AI in the future for sure. Mm-hmm. Not just for our line of work, but just part of our day-to-day living. And if AI is supposed to accommodate the natural languages of the world, then it should be able to do this. Yeah, and it should actually be trained on how people talk in multilingual environments. Mm-hmm. Feiting, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you could leave people knowing one thing about linguistics, what would it be? I think it would be that there is still a lot that we don't know. Mm. I think the brain is a fascinating organ. And a lot of what we do know about what the brain does when it comes to language processing and language acquisition, we know it from a very monolingual English point of view. Most of the people around the world are non-monolingual speakers and, and a lot of them don't speak English. So if we want to know how this organ that we have works when it comes to language acquisition and language processing, then we need more research on, you know, non-monolingual English-speaking populations. For more Lingthusiasm and links to all the things mentioned in this episode, go to lingthusiasm.com. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can follow at Lingthusiasm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. You can get IPA scarves, not judging your grammar, just analyzing it, stickers, IPA posters, and other Lingthusiasm merch at Lingthusiasm.com slash merch. I can be found as at Gretchen A. McSee on Twitter, my blog is allthingslinguistic.com, and my book about internet language is called Because Internet. Lauren tweets and blogs as Superlingo, 
And our guest, Woon Fei Ting, can be found as at Fei Ting W on Twitter, and the lab is facebook.com slash bliplabntu. Have you listened to all the Lingthusiasm episodes and you wish there were more? You can get access to an extra Lingthusiasm episode to listen to every month, plus our entire archive of bonus episodes to listen to right now at patreon.com slash lingthusiasm, or follow the links from our website. Have you gotten really into linguistics and you wish you had more people to talk with about it? Patrons also get access to our Discord chat room to talk with other linguistics fans. Plus, all patrons help keep the show ad-free. Can't afford to pledge? That's okay, too. We also really appreciate it if you can recommend Lingthusiasm to anyone in your life who's curious about language. Lingthusiasm is created and produced by Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gaughan. Our senior producer is Claire Gaughan, our editorial producer is Sarah Dapirella, and our production assistant is Martha Tsutsui-Billens. Our music is Ancient City by The Triangles. Stay Lingthusiastic! Lingthusiastic!